was a sweet time last night to celebrate 10 years of, of Reformed University Fellowship. If you are new to our church, that is the, our denomination's ministry to the campus. And um, it was 10 years ago that the Lord called Camille and I and my, our family here to start RUF. And it was so encouraging to see uh, people that I uh, had met 10 years ago sitting alongside students that were active in RUF today. And uh, thank you for supporting uh, RUF and that you you give to this church and this church supports RUF generously and some of you uh, give individually to RUF at JSU and thank you for that. And um, it was just a, a sweet time. Thank you for all that, all those who made it possible, who came and served. And... Uh, and uh, especially thank you to Courtney. Uh, Daniel's not here. Where's Courtney? They were just, she took the kids. There you go. Uh, Courtney did most of it. Uh, Daniel showed up. No, I'm joking. He was, he was very, he did a lot. But, um, but we all know. Anyway, it was the same with me and Camille. Camille, she figured that stuff out. Anyway, it was a wonderful time. Um, so, I, I, I sound very low today. So, yeah. maybe, I, maybe I'll do this voice is this more impressive if I speak like this? Anyway, so I hope you can, hope you can understand this register that I'm in. Um, if you will turn your Bibles to uh, Exodus. We're entering into uh, a part of this book that we're familiar with. I mean, if, you, like, if I ask you what's in the book of Exodus, you'll go, well, there's the plagues and there's the commandments. You know, everybody's got that down. Right, and and that's true. And so we're we're here at the plagues, and I I spent like two weeks going how how do I want to preach through this? And I know we're not gonna I'm not gonna take each plague one by one. That'd be a long ten weeks, I think. You know, just think about that. Just judgment, judgment, judgment. Um, and uh, but I think what we're gonna do, I'm gonna I want to start with this sign and this first plague. This first judgment. And then in a couple weeks, Rick's preaching next week. In a couple weeks, we're going to look at the plagues 2 through 9. And then after that, we're going to focus on that last, the Passover. And, um, and so, um, I don't know, just to get you ready. That's what's coming. Uh, but th- this, isn't, this is a, a pivotal uh, section in many ways of this book. Uh, just to catch you up, we've, we've seen God's people um, kept safe in Egypt. That's, we have to go back and remember that's how they got there. There was this famine and God, through his, because he's a covenant-keeping God, his plan to preserve uh, the, the family of Jacob, Israel, uh, he brought them to Egypt where uh, Jacob's son, Joseph, had received instruction from the Lord of how to preserve this whole nation and all who came into Egypt from the the famine that was to come. And so they were kept safe and they multiplied and grew. But also part of God's plan was for them to face trials and the trial of enslavement and bitter labor. But after 400 years, God had not forgotten his people uh, and and he saw them, and he knew, and he came uh, in their midst, and he sent uh, Moses. And, and so often when we, when we think about uh, these Old Testament characters, 
we, we think about them in terms of, hey, look, look how Moses, look at, look at this obedient fellow, this guy who has it all together. Uh, be like Moses and, you know, be, be a Daniel, be a David. But if you really read and, and are careful, these first, you know, chapters 3 through 6, Moses is a uh, reluctant uh, instrument of God. He does not want to do uh, what God has asked him. He is very, very doubtful of God's word. But last week, we finally see a, a change. And um, he is ready to do the will of God. Not because he's so great. He's, he acknowledges, I'm a man of unclean lips. I'm a man of uncircumcised lips. I am sinful. I am unworthy. God does not correct him. <laughs> but he says, I'm still going to send you. And you're still going to do what I said you're going to do. And you will see me work. And then we get this wonderful genealogy of reminds us not only that Moses is broken, but his, he comes from a broken people, but he's part of God's people. And so he's ready now to move forward trusting the Lord. So that's where we are as we come to uh, chapter 7, verse 8. Let me, uh, let me pray again before we read. Lord God, you are um, a, uh, a wonderful, all-powerful God. You, um, the, you are far from dull. And um, Lord, uh, shame on me and on the leaders of this church if we present you as dull. Um, you are a God of might and awe. You are a God who brings judgment and a God who brings salvation. Um, all things are yours. Every, um, every king is under you, for you are the king of kings. Lord God, we, um, as we enter into this part of Exodus, we see these things clearly. Lord, help us to see. Give us ears to hear and eyes to see your majesty, your power, and your grace. And that all of this points to the ultimate redemption that we, your people, enjoy in Christ. So, Lord, help us to see you more clearly, Lord Jesus, through the help of the Spirit. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Exodus 7, verse 8. Then the Lord, Yahweh, said to Moses and Aaron, When Pharaoh says to you, Prove yourselves by working a miracle, then you shall say to Aaron, Take your staff and cast it down before Pharaoh, that it may become a serpent. So Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and did just as the Lord commanded. Aaron cast down his staff before Pharaoh and his servants, and it became a serpent. Then Pharaoh summoned the wise men, the magicians, the sorcerers, and they, the magicians of Egypt, also did the same by their secret arts. For each man cast down his staff, and they became serpents. But Aaron's staff swallowed up their staffs. Still, Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. Then the Lord, Yahweh, said to Moses, Pharaoh's heart is hardened. He refuses to let the people go. Go to Pharaoh in the morning as he is going out to the water. Stand on the bank of the Nile to meet him, and take in your hand the staff that turned into a serpent. And you shall say to him, The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, 
sent me to you, saying, Let my people go, that they may serve me in the wilderness. But so far you have not obeyed. Thus the Lord, thus says the Lord, By this you shall know that I am Yahweh. Behold, with the staff that is in my hand, I will strike the water that is in the Nile, and it shall turn into blood. The fish in the Nile shall die. The Nile will stink, and the Egyptians will grow weary of drinking water from the Nile. And the Lord said to Moses, Say to Aaron, Take your staff and stretch out your hand over the waters of Egypt, over their rivers, their canals, their ponds, and all the pools of water, so that they may become blood. And there shall be blood throughout all the land of Egypt, even in vessels of wood and in vessels of stone. Moses and Aaron did as the Lord commanded In the sight of Pharaoh and in the sight of his servants, he lifted up the staff and struck the water of the Nile, and all the water in the Nile turned into blood, and the fish in the Nile died, and the Nile stank, so that the Egyptians could not drink water from the Nile. There was blood throughout all the land of Egypt, but the magicians of Egypt did the same by their secret arts. So Pharaoh's heart remained hardened, and he would not listen to them. As the Lord had said, Pharaoh turned and went into his house, and he did not take even this to heart. And all the Egyptians dug along the Nile for water to drink, for they could not drink the water of the Nile. Seven full days passed after the Lord, Yahweh, had struck the Nile. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. There's three questions that um, this text is going to answer for us this morning. First, how is obedience cultivated? Second, where is the true seat of power? And thirdly, who is the true source of life? First, how is obedience cultivated? And you might go, where, where is that in this text? But you remember that uh, I, wanted to, I wanted to start with just these two, this, this sign and this first plague, because it's a fulfillment of God's word from earlier in the text. If you flip back a few pages, you'll see in chapter 4, 1 through 9, it's the first time, again, as, he's, as God is speaking to Moses from the burning bush, he says, this is what you're going to do. And remember, he says, throw down your staff, it turned to a snake, Moses ran away. I see the humor in the scripture. I finally know. Because I don't remember that, you know. If you think about the story, you think Moses is like, yeah, of course. No, he runs off. He's surprised by it. So he turns a staff into a serpent. He picks it back up. It turns back to a staff. And, you know, then he says, put your hand in your cloak. He pulls it out. It's leprous. He puts it back in and takes it out. And it's, it's, it's whole and healed. And then he tells him to take some... He says, if, if, if they do not believe you... At that point, you will take some water from the Nile and turn it into blood. And you'll put it on the dry ground and that's what will happen. And if you go back to chapter 4, you remember Moses' initial response. It was, surely this can't be right. Surely I'm not supposed to do this. Look at verse 10 of chapter 4. Moses said to the Lord, O my Lord, I am not eloquent either in the past or since you have spoken to your servant, but I am slow to speech and tongue. And the Lord keeps encouraging him, and he keeps saying, Is there not someone else? (laughs) You know, I'm going to give you Aaron, and he's still reluctant. But how do we get from here, from chapter 4 to 7, 
verse 6 where he says, where it says, they did just as the Lord commanded them. And you see that that's repeated in this text, isn't it? You know, he's, he's, as we begin this whole encounter, the second encounter that Moses and Aaron have with, with Pharaoh, he says, as we speak about the whole, all the plagues and all that happens, they did just as the Lord had commanded them. But when, and then he, he, you hear that again as he talks about the staff and the snake. He did just as the, they did just as the Lord commanded them. You see that in verse 10 of chapter, of chapter 7. And then in verse 20, again, they did just as the Lord commanded them. And what I want you to see is that God was patient with Moses. God kept speaking to him. He didn't cast him off. He keeps speaking his word, his promise, what he is going to do to bring about deliverance. And that's how change happens for Moses. And that's how change happens for you and me. And I alluded to it earlier as we were as I was praying, but that is how we all grow. That's how sanctification happens. It's progressive. Some people say that sounds like that sounds a little uh, deceit, deceiving because progressive has a sense of speed, <laughs> but it's it, it's it's eventual. It's gradual. And the way we begin to lean into God and trust Him more and more is hearing God's truth in our lives more and more. And you see that God keeps, in a sense, not pleading. Because God can't do anything without Moses' help. Not that, but he keeps reiterating, I am the Lord your God. This is who I am. These are my promises. This is what I'm going to do. You're going to do this. You're going to say that. And this is going to be the result. And again, and again, and again, and again, and again. Where Moses finally realizes, it's not about me. It's about you. Obedience is not earning God's favor or doing your part necessarily is simply trusting him resting in him and get this proving God true and i think that's where that's where Moses is and when you can as you grow in Christ and you find delight in His Word, where it really is, as the psalmist in, in, in Psalm 19 says, it's like honey on the tongue. It's, it's a delight because you've seen His Word prove true again and again. That, that you can rest in what God's plan is, whether or not you can, you can understand it. Do you think Moses really understood? Could he fathom? Again, he pleaded, I, I can't... I I can't imagine you doing this in my life or in the lives of these people through something I'm going to say to Pharaoh. How in the world? But that's our struggle too. How, God, are you going to change me and work in my life through something a Messiah did 2,000 years ago? Again, it doesn't make a lot of sense. But it's true. And God saves. And God, God always comes through. So he's trusting, he's resting, he's proving God's word true. He's doing all that the God can commanded. And again, sometimes we come in, we just like to swoop in. Hey, let me tell you about Moses and then start with chapter 7, verse 6. But there's a process. And you know what? He doesn't stay like this. He, you're going to see Moses struggle in the chapters to come as well. But now, here, he gets it. It's not about me. It's about God being 
faithful. Not about my faithfulness, His faithfulness. And you see that when He comes through, the signs that He performs are bigger, greater than what was described in chapter 4, isn't it? You know, you have the serpent, but then the serpent swallows up the other staffs. That wasn't part of it. And then he says, you're going to take some water from the Nile and put it on the dry ground. It's going to turn to blood. But you realize, what? It, the scope is, is so much bigger. And so again, when growing in grace, growing as a Christian, is recognizing that God, what? What does he say in Ephesians 3.20? That he does far more abundantly than all we can ask or imagine. And Moses had his word, had the word of God and do a little bit of what he's going to do. With, but you know Moses, as he follows through and lifts up the staff, had to, be, had to go like, wow. This is so much bigger, wilder than I'd ever thought. He, God is exceeding my expectations. I, 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 I just, I'm, I'm scratching the surface but he is not disappointed when he decides to listen to the Lord and prove his word true. But it happens gradually over time through the persistence of God's promise to deliver. And that's how you and I grow as well. Second thing is, we see where the true seat of power is. Um, we see that and this serpent encounter. Why a serpent, you know? If you've read the scripture to this point, you realize that the serpent symbolizes who? <laughs> Typically Satan, right? You know, if we go back to Genesis 3, uh, 15, the, the, the proto-gospel, if you will. The, pro, the, the very beginning of the promise. Uh, there will be a, a seed of the woman who will crush this, the, the head of the serpent. The seed of the serpent. And so when you think about serpent, you think about snake, you think unbeliever. You think Satan and those who worship Satan. Why a serpent? Well, this is when the um, studying the culture of Egypt is important. And... Um, I didn't go and, you know, do any uh, archaeological digs. I read, about, I read a book by a guy who did. That's, that's how you do it. And um, he said that, you know, um, one of my professors, he wrote a commentary. He's an Egyptologist as well as a Hebrew professor. You know, we always joked about where's your hat and your whip, you know, like Indiana Jones. But I don't, he's not the type. But anyway, um, what you realize, and if you've watched movies and you know a little bit about Egypt... What's in the very front of their, of their crown? It's a serpent. It's a female cobra. Like they're, they're bigger than the males. And it's like ready to strike. And that was the feature of, of his crown. And they believed that that was a somehow energized with sovereignty and potency. Because they believed that Pharaoh was, was a god. That he, he, um, he was the embodiment of, of Horus and another Egyptian god. And it was the emblem of his power, the cobra. And this is a different Hebrew word, actually, than what we normally see for snake. It's, it's a large, it's something different, it's a bigger thing. So it, it's you know, very likely a, a cobra, as they're said, the largest serpent in Egypt. And this emblem of Pharaoh's power is what God decides to turn that staff into. <laughs> He is, he is attacking 
Pharaoh's um, delusion, his, his, this idea that Pharaoh is sovereign, he's attacking it head on. And the, and the act of casting the staff down, it was, was like an open challenge to the, the priests, the magicians of, of Egypt. It's kind of like, let, let's meet high noon on the street. It's like that, throwing the staff down. And, you know, in, in that culture, it was like, who, who's the greater God? Well, whoever's followers have the greater magic. So they show up, not just with these signs that God had given, but they're signs that directly attack, that are, that are culturally relevant to, to where they are. And he comes in and he mocks Pharaoh's power. And then what happens? Aaron's staff swallows up the other two staffs. What does that mean? It means that 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 Aaron's God, Moses' God, has more power. He destroys what is perceived as the power of of Pharaoh, and and also in that culture, when something was swallowed up, it was also had the idea of uh, absorbing or acquiring the traits of that which it took, which it ate, and so he's just. Pulling all the power to himself. That's the image that is, is displayed before Pharaoh. Yeah, the, the Egyptians, um, the Egyptian sorcerers, um, magicians could recreate it. And I don't know how they did. I don't know if it was a trick. I don't know if it was some dark arts. I, you know, it doesn't, we don't know. But the end of the day is just one is left standing. There's just one serpent left. There's just one true seat of power, and that is in heaven. That's the throne of Yahweh. And it says, Pharaoh's heart was hard. After seeing this, you would think, surely there would be some kind of moment of hesitation. Surely there would be some kind of thought of, maybe I need to stop. (laughs) Maybe I need to rethink my my strategy. But unlike in chapter 4, this one is like in the perfect tense. It means it's not that he will harden his heart or is in the process. Pharaoh's heart is done. It's hard. It's solid. Nothing is getting through. And this is typical of the unbeliever. You see throughout the scripture, even in the New Testament, there's a demand for signs and there's a demand for miracles. But if the heart isn't changed, any kind of physical evidence or miraculous event will not get through. In Matthew thirteen thirteen, it says, Even many of those who saw Jesus, well, even yeah, many of those who saw Jesus heard his preaching and witnessed his miracle and did not believe him. For, and this is Matthew thirteen thirteen, while seeing they do not see, and while hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. Paul would go on and say, as he's talking to the Romans, like, does the fact that there are people, like even Israel, that don't trust in Jesus, does that mean that the gospel isn't true? This is in Romans 9, but he says, no. No, in Romans 10, actually. He goes, no, this is, this is this, the gospel is true, but God, God hardens hearts, and then God heals hearts. It's, he is sovereign over this. And just because we see this hardening of Pharaoh, a clear evidence of God's work, just because the Pharisees, whom God called what? A a brood of vipers. 
They call their father the devil. You're children of the devil. Just because they can't see and their hearts, hearts are hardened doesn't mean that the gospel isn't true. So many young people today are going, so many people in my, so much of the world and my professors, they don't believe the gospel and they call it into question. But realize this, no one can believe apart from God's grace. No one can be talked into the kingdom. The fact that there's unbelief doesn't prove the Bible untrue. It proves it true. Because the Bible says there will be those who don't believe. So this isn't a failure. This is, again, evidence. The seat of power is with Yahweh. He controls Pharaoh. He controls his heart. He controls who is in his kingdom. He controls when his people will be set free. true seat of power is with God, not Pharaoh. And God mocks him in having this staff swallow up the staffs of his servants. Thirdly, and finally, who is the true source of life? We, we, we have this sign that was given in chapter 4, but then he says, if they don't believe this sign, and don't believe the sign of the leprous hand. Now, that's not performed here. We'll see that later in the sixth plague. And I'll we'll talk about that more then. But if they don't respond to this sign, and God said, by the way, he won't, then you're going to perform this first of the plagues. And here's a question. Why turn the Nile to blood? What was that about? Some commentators wrongly say, well, this was just kind of a shot across the bow. It didn't really affect their person, their, their you, know, you know, like the other ones. Get, they, they do intensify. But do you realize how devastating this was? That the Egyptians, they saw the Nile as their primary source of existence. There are some historical uh, like, uh, writers from that day who, who refer to Egypt as the gift of the Nile. And if you understand geography and farming and all that, it, that's what it was. It was, it was a, a seat of great of a civilization because of, of, of the, the, the water source and the, and the food source. And that when it flooded, it fertilized the lands. And, and that's how they survived. Uh, so much of their existence was dependent on the, 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 the literal ebb and flow of this river. And God says, this, your source of life, who, who they had personified as a God in himself called uh, Happy, Hoppy, uh, H-A-P-I, not happy, not, you know, not that, but that's what they called it. And they had made a God of the river. And he goes, no, no, this is not the source of life. This is not the source of your existence. And we see him say, go and he says thus saith Yahweh and he they act and they do all that he said and he raises he touches the water it turns to blood and there's a question is it real blood or just the appearance of blood and there's commentators that that you know what do we do with that but does it does it take away from the miracle I would argue not I tend to just go with it's actual blood 
Well, how do you explain that naturally? I can't. That's why it's a miracle. That's why, you know, like, I don't have to. But say it was some kind of red algae or sediment that killed all the fish. The fact that it happened instantaneously, that the source of life for Egypt all of a sudden, in a moment, became death and reeked of death. God did that. God did that. The result was the, was no more water. The result was the food source, their fish being all dead. The result was their source of life becoming the reek of death. And again, notice the scope of this. What began with take some water and put it on the ground to the whole river. And then Aaron takes the staff. There's a handoff, a baton, you know. <laughs> then he takes the staff. And, and just holds it. And all the water of Egypt. Everything. All of it turned to blood. Explain that. <laughs> there was no water. Egyptians were digging wells by the river to try to find something to sustain them. Note the, the scope. It, it was in its, in its geography, in its location. It was all over Egypt. And also in its time, it lasted seven days. Some people say that's just seven days between uh, this plague and the next. I, I, I'm convinced it means this was seven days. Smelling death. With no water, no food, and a constant reek. And still, Pharaoh's heart is hardened. And he's not convinced. And that's going to be a, a theme for the next four chapters. This hard-hearted man who at times hardens his own heart. And at times God hardens his heart. But all to what end? To God bringing about Redemption, God giving life to his people. The Nile isn't the source of life. God's saying, I give you the Nile. I have provided for you, Egypt. I am the giver of every good gift. There's nothing good that is apart from me. And Yahweh makes that known to this hard-hearted Pharaoh and his servants. Yahweh is the only giver of life. He is the ultimate judge. John 17. Again, Jesus is the second person of the Trinity. He is the Yahweh. He is Lord. He says at this high priestly prayer, Jesus, when he had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes. This is John 17, 1 through 3. He lifted his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh. To give eternal life to all whom you have given given him. And this is eternal life that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. If we take this passage and realize that the only source of life is God, it's not just life, it's not just living, moving, and, and, and going to work and earning and eating, but that and eternal life itself. Yahweh shows himself in this sign and in this plague that he has all power. He has power to bring life 
power to bring death. And I read, you know, you know, what I didn't read earlier in our reflections was a quote from Charles Spurgeon. It says, Lots of men preach about heaven, I try to take men there. Lots of men preach hell, I try to take them there too. We can't, we can't appreciate the good news of eternal life that comes to sinners like us unless we understand the bad news. And there's a lot of bad news here for those who reject God, whose hearts are hard to Him. I want you to take note. There's, it's interesting, and you, if you um, have a good commentary or no Hebrew, either one, you can, you, you can, you'll, it'll become evident to you that when it says in, in verse 7, uh, verse 12 of chapter 7, when the snake swallows up the other serpents, it's the same word that's used when it, in, in chapter 15, verse 12, when the Egyptian army is swallowed up by the Red Sea. Is that an accident? I don't think so. <laughs> that that this, this account really does just encompass all that's to come. And again, the judgment of water and the Nile turning to blood points to what will happen when God brings judgment on all the Egyptian army. This isn't just one event, just one, uh, one event of God showing His power, but it is a foretaste of the judgment to come for Egypt, but also it foreshadows the ultimate judgment that will fall upon the followers of Satan at the end of time and the day of the Lord. Recently we, we looked at Revelation and studied it, but if, just to remind you, Revelation 16 Three through seven, it says, and the second angel poured out his bowl into the sea, and it became like blood of a, of a corpse. And every living thing died that was in the air, in the sea. And the third angel poured out its bowl into the rivers and the springs of water, and they became blood. And I heard an angel in the charge of the waters say, "Just are you, O holy one, who is and who was, for you brought these judgments, for they have shed the blood of the saints." And the prophets, and you have given them blood to drink. It is what they deserve. And I heard the altar saying, Yes, Lord, God the Almighty, true and just are your judgments. At the end of times, as, as we read at the we read Revelation, he wants us to remember this event. How it points to the fact that we have a God who's in charge, who has all power and authority, and who is the ultimate source of judgment and also of life. Not just life in a temporary way, but life eternal. Death eternal and life eternal belongs to Him. He is God. He is King, not Pharaoh. He is source of life, not the Nile, not creation, not the universe, but the God of Israel. The judgment is real, but also the promise is real. And that's why we go back to the very beginning. Moses and Aaron, the children of Israel, helpless, sinful, enslaved, without hope, but in the promise of Yahweh. 
Do you deserve judgment of God? Yes. Do I? Yes. But by His grace, because of His promise, we have life. You and I can rest in Him. You and I can trust Him. You and I can live each day proving His Word true. Let's pray. Lord God, we give You thanks for Your power, Your glory, Your might. You are not boring. You are not dull. You will do what You've said. You will bring judgment against your enemies and you will complete the good work you began in us. All your promises will come true. Help us who are in Christ, who are your people, to find joy and rest and delight in your, in your redemptive work, in your acts of deliverance. But may all who do not know you. May they recognize that there is judgment that's coming. And may we, your people, talk about the necessity of your justice as well as your grace. Humble us by it. And Lord, draw people to yourself through this, your word. We pray this in his name. Amen.